Lord, not to us, not to us, but to you and your name give glory in this hour, we pray. We pray that you would be exalted as God, that your reputation would be made great as we open your word again and declare it. Father, that you would help us as your followers to glean as much as we can for our minds and hearts and lives uh, through this portion of your word in Genesis 17. Lord, most of this chapter is you speaking, and so we pray that we would have ears to hear and listen uh, to what you are directing to us that we can take and apply later. So we pray your help now uh, for both me as I speak and for the hearers in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as a believer, I am very glad that my level of faithfulness to God is not the determining factor in his faithfulness to me. I'm, I'm very glad. Did I mention that? Very glad for the truth of 2 Timothy 2.13 that Jonathan quoted a little earlier in his prayer. That if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Isn't that delicious news? Isn't that good news? Last week we were looking at the mess in Genesis 16. The faithlessness of Abram at this point. Abram, he'll become Abraham very shortly. The faithlessness of Abram and Sarai as they concocted a plan to generate a child. It was a plan that ignored God and a plan that tried to put control back in human hands. But God remained faithful despite the faithlessness of Abram and Sarai. God remains faithful, friends, to us despite our lapses in faith. And now as we proceed into Genesis 17, we see the faithfulness of God shining here in all its brilliance. I want us to note carefully the progression of Genesis 15 through Genesis 17. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abram in his grace and God makes covenant with Abram. Then, in Genesis 16, Abram falls off the boat and lapses into faithlessness. Now, in Genesis 17, God appears again to Abram and shows Abram that despite Abram's God-denying, God-neglecting actions in Genesis 16, that God still has a future for Abram. Here in Genesis 17, God reaffirms the Genesis 15 covenant because God remains faithful despite human faithlessness. The word covenant will appear some 13 times in Genesis 17. So it is clear that covenant is the controlling theme of this chapter of Genesis 17. And just as a refresher uh, from two weeks ago when we were looking at the initial stage of the covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, a covenant, in the words of Charles Scobie, is an agreement between two parties 
that establishes a special relationship between them with mutual but not necessarily equal obligations sealed by a special ceremony. A covenant, in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, is what God does when he gets formal about a promise. A covenant, in the memorable words of O. Palmer Robertson, a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. In Genesis 17, God is faithful to his covenant. He is renewing the covenant of Genesis 15 with Abram after the faithless performance of Abram and Sarai in Genesis 16. Let's look together at this amazing chapter. Hope you have your Bible open. Verse 1 begins in a rather interesting way. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now this is interesting because right at the end of chapter 16, Abram had been 86 years old. Now as chapter 17 opens, he's 99. Now, if you have your Bible open, look down at the white space on the page between Genesis 16 and 17. That white space between the chapters represents 13 whole years. The question is, what was Abram doing for those 13 silent years of his life in between chapter 16 and 17? And what was God doing? The text doesn't tell us what was happening with Abram and with God, but we can make an educated guess as to what was happening. For Abram's part, surely in seasons, in seasons of those 13 years between age 86 and 99, Abram had reflected on his faithlessness. Faithlessness when he had gone down to Egypt without authorization from God and faithlessness when he'd listened to his wife and then had gone in to Hagar, ignoring God. He had reflected, he'd had lots of time to reflect on his faithlessness. But aside from that reflection on his faithless ways, there is no doubt that these 13 silent years must have involved the basic, mundane, Ordinary, routine stuff of life. Life went on for Abram during these 13 years. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, during these 13 silent years, a lot of the time would have been spent getting goat's milk for morning cereal, doing veterinary work, brushing teeth, getting over the flu, Settling disputes over water rights. Ordinary stuff. Now get this, God had given his covenant, big moment, his covenant to Abram in Genesis 15. Abram was a covenant person. And for these 13 years, Abram, the covenant person, lived out ordinary, routine days. Dale Ralph Davis says, and I think this is important for us, he says, great swatches, listen to this, great swatches of covenant life 
are like that. It consists of grocery stores and oil changes, of taking inventory and standing at copy machines, of getting allergy shots and going for music lessons and pulling casseroles out of the oven. Thirteen silent years of covenant life. The question for us is, are we content as Christian covenant people to live out ordinary lives? To be content and happy with the many routine days that will be part of our lives. Are we content? Well, we've talked a little bit about what these 13 silent years might have looked like for Abram. What about God? What was God up to with these 13 silent years? I think that God purposed here to simply let Abram age 13 years. To go from 86 to age 99. God did this for a very good reason. And the reason was to bring Abram to the point at 99 years of age, listen, where there was no possibility anymore from a human biological perspective that God's promise of providing a biological son to Abram could come true. No more possibility of that from the human perspective. Ishmael was not the child that God had promised. Ishmael had come about by that human scheme of Abram and his wife. And now Abram is 99. God purposed these 13 years from age 86 to 99 to bring Abram to the point where Abram and everyone around him would have to say, If God is still going to provide this promised child, it will have to come 100%, totally, completely, by God all by himself. These 13 years were purposed by God, I think, to bring Abram to the end of himself. God appears to Abram suddenly, verse 1, after 13 silent years, and God begins to speak. He says in verse 1, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, or possibly, I am God of the mountains, or possibly, I am he who is sufficient. We're not 100% sure about the precise meaning of El Shaddai. Usually in our English Bibles, it's rendered as something like God Almighty. This name for God, El Shaddai, is associated particularly with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry say, It seems that this name, El Shaddai, was given to encourage faith, to encourage faith because of the disparity between the covenant promises and the reality of the situation in which the patriarchs often found themselves. Yes, Abram needs a word from God. He's 99. 
No promised child from God. If God is going to remain faithful to his promise of a child, then God will literally have to bring something out of nothing. God will have to do what he did at creation. Bring something out of nothing. I am El Shaddai. Listen to what he says. Walk before me, Abram, and be blameless. God is about to renew his covenant with Abram, and here God begins by laying down some covenant stipulations for his covenant partner. Walk before me and be blameless. Abram, as covenant partner with God, must live in obedience to God. Now, according to the work that John Walton has done on this phrase here, walk before me, What God is doing here when he says this, walk before me, is he's calling on Abram to be his representative. To act as God's emissary in the world. The world will look at Abram and what they should see when they look is a human being in right relationship with the one true God. What they should see in Abram is a human being who worships rightly and who also loves his human neighbor. They should see one who acts in kingly, merciful ways with the creation around him. Walk before me. Abram is being called to be a light to the nations who will observe him. And this connects... Does it not with the command back in Genesis 12:3 that Abram is to be a blessing to the nations? Walk before me, says El Shaddai, and be blameless. Now the word blameless in this context has to do with conduct that is unreserved, unreservedly sincere and faithful. Abram must be unreservedly faithful and sincere and honest with God and in his dealings with others. Abram has had 13 long years to reflect on his less than faithful, less than sincere past conduct. Now God shows up and reaffirms covenant with Abram and calls Abram to a refreshed commitment to faithfulness and sincerity. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, that I may make covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. See, God's whole design from Genesis 1 with Adam through Genesis 9 with Noah Up to this point in Genesis 17 with Abram, God's whole design has been to have his human creatures multiply over the face of the earth in order to do what? In order to spread the glory of God over the entire earth. Abram is now the channel, after Adam and Noah had been, he is now the channel through whom the blessing of the multiplication of the seed of the woman will happen. And in verse 3, Abram does what you do when God appears to you suddenly and begins speaking to you like this. Notice this. Abram 
fell on his face in a posture of worship and in a posture of complete submission. And God continued to speak to Abram. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Yes, Abraham and Sarah will become the biological parents, the biological ancestors of actual nations like Israel and like Edom and like the Ishmaelites. But Abraham and Sarah will also become the spiritual father and mother, the spiritual ancestors of the nations, you and I, in whom the faith of Abraham is reproduced. Again, New Testament passages like Romans 4, verses 16 and 17, and Galatians 3.29, those passages link us believers, us Christians, to Abraham. We are Abraham's offspring if we share in Abraham's faith. So there is a sense in which when God says here in Genesis 17.4 that Abram will be the father of a multitude of nations, he's not just talking about biological, biologically descendant nations like Israel and Edom and the Ishmaelites. He's also talking spiritually about us who sit in this sanctuary today. Christians who share in Abraham's faith, who are Abraham's spiritual offspring. Verse 5, God says to Abram, here it is, the name change, No longer shall your name be called Abram, which incidentally means something like exalted father. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Avraham, Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God renames Abram here, as was the prerogative of the superior covenant partner with the lesser covenant partner. God takes the name Abram and God modifies the name. God takes the Hebrew word of, which means father, and God takes the Hebrew word hamon, which in this verse means abundance or multitude in reference to the nations, and God makes the name of Raham, Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. So that the very name Abraham, father of a multitude of nations, is a missional name. It is a name that looks outward to the nations. And every time someone would address Abraham by name now, Abraham would be reminded in hearing his name of that mission, of God's promise, which centered on blessing the nations. Verse 6, God continues, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Like Adam was supposed to be in Genesis 128, 
and like Noah was supposed to be in Genesis 9-1, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and, notice, kings shall come from you. Notice that. God promised here, very early in the Bible, that kings would come from Abraham. And, of course, we can trace a line forward from this verse about kings coming from Abraham to Genesis 49, where we learn that kingship will sprout from Judah, then to Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 17, where there is a further idea, uh, development of the idea of kingship, all the way through David and the Davidic lineage, and then to Jesus, who comes in the lineage of Abraham, and who is from Judah, and who is the king of kings. Now, isn't this an amazing promise here to Abraham? Consider this. Abraham had just exercised faithlessness in Genesis 16, and now God comes and tells him in Genesis 17, hey, Abraham, royalty will emerge in your lineage. God is amazing in his grace, isn't he? And in his generosity and his mercy and in his faith, faithfulness. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant. Notice the repetition of the word covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Note very carefully toward the end of this verse that the very nature of the covenant that God was laying down for Abraham, the warp and woof of this covenant was that God would be God to Abraham and to his offspring. God uses that phrase there, to be God to you. Friends, there is so much here for us to be God to you. God is laying down this covenant. God is doing all the talking here. God is setting down the terms of this covenant. God is acting and speaking unilaterally to Abraham. This is God's covenant that God dreamed up that Abraham must simply accept or Abraham can face the consequences. The covenant is coming one way from God to Abraham and the very nature of this unilateral covenant, according to the end of verse 7, is that God will be God to Abraham and to his offspring. In other words, Abraham, we need to notice this in our 21st century climate, Abraham is not given any options here in the matter of choosing his own God or gods. It's not like Abraham has the option to say, well, that God seems to work for that person. This other God works for this other person. Hmm. Which one should I choose? No. 
Abraham is not at a deity buffet where he can choose his own deity. God simply comes to Abraham. This is how our God operates. He simply comes to Abraham suddenly after 13 years, and God does all the talking, and God says, here's the covenant, take it, I am your God, I will be God to you, surrender to me, or face the consequences. And my question is, why wouldn't Abraham surrender? To have the God who created oceans and all vegetation and antelope, to have this God who created everything just by speaking, to have this God who dreamed up Abraham's eyeballs and Abraham's cerebral cortex, To have this God who has all of history in his control. To have this God come and say to you, I will be God to you, Abraham. (laughs) I will exercise my godness for you, Abraham. As God, I will be 100% faithful to you and I will remain committed to you. Why wouldn't Abraham surrender here? Why wouldn't we... Surrender to this God when he comes invading our lives like he does with Abraham here. To have God Almighty be God to us. This is a relationship, says Dale Ralph Davis, that no disaster can destroy, that no catastrophe can crush, that no human abandonment can ever alter. And so my question to you is, have you surrendered to the God that we are preaching today. Verse 8, God continues his covenant monologue. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, listen, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now what's interesting here, and I think perhaps a little strange, is that back in chapter 15, Verse 15, God had revealed to Abraham that Abraham would die before Abraham would have a chance to inherit the promised land. But yet here at 17.8, God tells Abraham that Abraham will be given the land of Canaan as a possession. So which is it? I think all we can do here is, as Ralph Davis suggests, which is to affirm that both verses are accurate. Abraham will indeed die before he has the chance to take full possession of the land, but yet Abraham will still receive full possession of the land. And how can this be? How can both be true? Well, Abraham will die, friends, but Abraham will be resurrected. One day on the new earth, Abraham will enjoy the land of Canaan and take full possession of it. Because that piece of real estate will still be on the new earth. Abraham himself will receive the full inheritance of the land of Canaan. And I expect to see, when I go to the land of Canaan and the new earth, a sign that says this is Abraham's land. 
Let's go to verse 9. God continues here. God says to Abraham, As for you, Abraham, listen to what God says. You shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Note again how God just rather bluntly lays down the terms of the covenant to the covenant partner. You shall keep my covenant, Abraham. There's no room here for Abraham to strike up some sort of bargain with God, to to sort of negotiate the terms of the covenant. It's just, here's my covenant, Abraham, now you shall keep it. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision, of course, is the cutting away of the foreskin on the male procreative organ. And in verse 11, God calls circumcision the sign. Notice that, the sign of this covenant that he's making with Abraham. A sign is what? A sign is something that points beyond itself to a greater reality. The wedding band on my hand is a sign of the greater reality, which is, of course, the marital relationship that I enjoy with my wife. Circumcision pointed to the greater reality which was the covenant relationship, the bond that God was carving out here with Abraham. And there were several things, I think, that circumcision would reinforce for Abraham and his offspring or that circumcision would serve to remind them of. First of all, just to say, circumcision affected the most personal part of the male body. In commanding circumcision, God was going to that most personal, intimate area. I think to say that the covenant relationship affected every single area of a covenant person's life, including the most personal areas. See, friends, what God will have from us is an intimate relationship, yes? Full disclosure concerning every area of our lives, our sexuality, our thought life, our motivations, our ambitions, our desires, our truthfulness. As Ian Duguid has put it, if you are in a covenant relationship with God, then no area of your life can be unaffected. God will have an all-consuming, intimate relationship with his children, and so he targets that most personal and intimate area of the male body with circumcision, I think, in order to convey that message. That's the first thing. Secondly... Concerning Abraham himself, circumcision would be a physical reminder that Abraham could see with his own eyes that would remind him every day that, yes, I am in covenant with God, and yes, this very organ that is affected by circumcision was complicit 
in my faithlessness with Hagar. But it will also be instrumental in the acquisition of the child that God has promised. Circumcision was a reminder to Abraham to remain blameless, to wait in obedience, to wait in obedience for God and for the child that God had promised. Third, as the sign of the covenant, circumcision suggested a curse. If Abraham and his offspring were to break the covenant, a curse would befall them. This was signified in circumcision because circumcision involved cutting. The idea was that the person cut in circumcision could be cut off for violating the covenant. I think that's going on here as well. And then fourth and finally we need to point out that circumcision was not unique to Abraham and Israel. Circumcision, in fact, was a widely practiced thing amongst several people groups in the ancient Near East, and probably, according to Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry, probably we should see an Egyptian background to the circumcision that's being commanded in Genesis 17. The ancient Egyptians, interestingly enough, used circumcision as an initiation rite for priests. Could it be that God commands circumcision here for every male, every male of Israel, because all Israel was going to become a kingdom of priests, according to Exodus 19.6? Circumcision as an initiation rite for priests would fit here because every Israelite was purposed to be a priest, consecrated and set apart for service to God. Now, incidentally, just before we go forward to verse 12 and following, we'll try to motor through the rest of this a little quicker, but I should mention here that, of course, the circumcision in mind in this passage was a male Thing. It was to be done with males. But that did not mean that females were excluded somehow from the covenant. Clearly, females were covered under the covenant by virtue of what was done to the males in this patriarchal community. So let's go forward after all of that to verse 12 and following now. God says, he continues his speech, he says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And here is where the uniqueness of circumcision in Israel comes into play. Amongst the people groups that surrounded the nation of Israel, circumcision was done when males were generally older. But here, Israel is to perform circumcision on eight-day-old infants, and this made Israel unique in the world of nations. God continues... Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, listen to this, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Isn't this interesting? We can see here that right from the beginning, God wanted circumcision. He wanted this covenantal sign to be open 
to Gentiles, to those bought by Israelites from other nations and brought into Israelite homes. God has always been after the nations. God continues, So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We note here that circumcision was to be taken entirely seriously. Verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So as Abram's name was changed to Abraham, now Sarai's name is changed by God to Sarah. Both Sarai and Sarah mean the same thing. They both mean princess. And princesses, are related to other royal family members. And in verse 16, God declares that kings will come from Sarah, just as God had said that kings would come from Abraham back in verse 6. God says, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So the princess Sarah will bear kings. And then for the second time in the chapter, Abraham falls face down before God. But here the circumstances are slightly different. Verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham fell on his face, vayitzhak in Hebrew. And he laughed, vayitzhak, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, Abraham is skeptical and sort of cynical about what God had just said in verse 16. Va Yitzhak. And he laughed after hearing God. In verse 18, God wants, or sorry, Abraham wants God to reconsider all this and just take Ishmael as the heir of the promises. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, Abraham laughs and God remains cool. Verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yitzhak, Isaac. So get this, friends. Verse 17, Va Yitzhak, and he laughed. Abraham laughed. Verse 19, Yitzhak, Isaac, would be the name of the baby boy. The name Isaac means he laughs. Abraham laughed when God confirmed that a son would be born to this nearly 100-year-old couple, and the baby's name will be, he laughs. If Abraham laughed out of doubt and cynicism, God would get the last laugh 
in blessing Abraham with Isaac. That's the idea here. As we said in our Thursday night study, the Hebrews, right from the time they wrote the scriptures all the way up to Seinfeld, have a great sense of humor. God continues in verse 19. I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verse 20. As for Ishmael, now here's some, a little more humor in the text. Remember that the name Ishmael means God hears, right? God says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. <laughs> Ishmael, God hears, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. There's Genesis 1.28 again. He shall father 12 princes, Ishmael will, and I will make him into a great nation. And of course, in Genesis 25, the 12 princes of Ishmael, the 12 sons of Ishmael, are all named in that chapter. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, notice this, the covenant of Yahweh will proceed through Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, and now here's some uh, uh, baby blue balloons going up, Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. <gasps> oh. Wow! So now God gives a precise timeline, finally, for the birth of Abraham's son, only a year away. Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So now this monumental monologue of God to Abraham is over. And then verses 23 through 27, Abraham shows that he's a doer of the word. Abraham sets about now to obey, to follow through on what God has commanded, and Abraham does this without delay. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ouch. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old. Ouch again when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Notice how faith sometimes requires something painful, if it is to be faith. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And thus ends Genesis 17. Now, friends... With the rest of the Bible before us, we know, don't we? We know that Abraham's offspring did not keep God's covenant. As God had instructed in verses 9 and 10 of our chapter, we know that Abraham's offspring did not walk before God blamelessly as God had desired in verse 1. And as we alluded to earlier, the physical cutting involved in the, in the covenant sign and circumcision, that cutting signified a cutting off of anyone who disobeyed the covenant. It, and so the question then is, with the whole Bible open, 
Was Israel cut off from God? Was humanity cut off from God altogether because of our rampant covenant violations? The first verse of the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament, tells us that Jesus Christ came in the lineage of Abraham. Genesis 17.6 and 17.16 told us that kings would come in the lineage of Abraham and Sarah. We have the king of kings in this son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And in God's design, King Jesus is the one who is cut off for the covenant violations of his people. Isaiah 53, 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Daniel 9, 26. The Messiah was cut off. Jesus, King Jesus, substitutes himself on the cross for the covenant violations of God's people. Jesus takes the penalty of death for our covenant violations. None of us has kept the covenant. God remains faithful to his elect. In Jesus Christ, he remains faithful despite our faithlessness toward Him. Amen? Amen. And Jesus is the only Son of Abraham who has ever walked blamelessly before God. Jesus is the only offspring of Abraham who has ever kept the covenant of God perfectly. Our acceptance by God only happens by union with the righteous covenant keeper Jesus Christ. Jesus comes as the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant, which included physical physical circumcision as its sign, has been superseded by the new covenant that Jesus brings, which no longer requires physical circumcision as its sign. Even in the Old Testament, God revealed that there was a deeper reality that he was after with human beings. That the physical circumcision in Abraham's covenant was only an outward sign that signified a deeper inner reality. Which is why God talks in several places already in the Old Testament about circumcising the foreskin of the heart Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4.4, Ezekiel 44, verses 7 through 9, just to name a few. And then in the New Testament, in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, we have the Apostle Paul saying explicitly there that circumcision, listen, is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. There is still a circumcision that God is after in the New Covenant but it's not physical circumcision. Rather, it's a spiritual circumcision administered by the Holy Spirit who writes God's law on our hearts. Paul can go so far as to say to Christians in Philippians 3.3, he's writing to Christians, and he says that we are the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We said a few moments ago that physical circumcision is no longer required to be in covenant with God, that physical circumcision is not the sign of the new covenant. So then what is the sign of the new and better covenant? Answer, baptism. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. This is very interesting because here Paul links, he links the old circumcision with the new baptism. Paul writes this, In him, in Christ, also you, males and females of the new covenant, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So as people of the new covenant, male or female, we are circumcised in the inner spiritual way when we are buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism comes after our entrance into the new covenant, an entrance that is described in John 1.13. How do we enter into the new covenant? Jesus says, by being born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Entrance into the new covenant happens by being born again by being regenerated by the Spirit of God, by being enlivened, trusting in the descendant of Abraham, Jesus, who was cut off for our sin on his cross. Well, I want to end today by going to prayer again, by approaching God in thanksgiving for a couple of things. First, for being perfectly and consistently faithful to us faithless types Sending Jesus as he has for us. Jesus who dies for our covenant violations and who mediates to us a new and better covenant. And secondly, let's thank God for his Holy Spirit who circumcises our hearts and who enables us to obey. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful and faithful Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us today as we have worshipped. We thank you for your presence with us as we go forth from this place and go about what will be for some of us mundane and ordinary days as covenant people this week. We pray, dear God, that we would become an increasingly thankful people for what you have done for us in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, that we would shine forth to the world around us in thanksgiving and gratitude and in the praise of you for your greatness and your faithfulness. Help us to be a witnessing people, to witness to other faithless types like us about the faithfulness of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the Lord's benediction for you. Go forth from here as those who hear the call of Christ, as those who respond to that call, as those who live in the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
And may the knowledge and forgiveness of Christ be shed abroad wherever you move. Amen.